Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking Talent. I'm Nicole Fuqua. You're listening to our audio series where we dig into issues related to talent acquisition. Today, we're talking about the onboarding process and setting yourself up for success with new hires and promotions in the first 90 days. Those first 90 days are a critical point for a new hire or promotion. Recent surveys have found that about 30% of job seekers have left a job within the first 90 days of hiring. Now, despite this, most onboarding programs are too short. According to Sherm, nearly 40% of onboarding programs only last a week or less. So what impact does this have on the success of a new employee or the company? And what can employers do during the first 90 days to improve the happiness and productivity of new hires? Joining me to talk about this is Dana Look Aramoto, who's a mentor, speaker, and change agent. Dana has more than 20 years of experience in the talent ecosystem. She's created Phoenix 5 to evangelize a new mindset, Stop Settling. She coaches executives and leaders of all kinds to become their all in every part of their life, work, home, community, and giving back. Dana, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Now, Dana, we know the first 90 days are important, but in your experience, what kind of a difference does it make when an employer has a well-developed onboarding program to guide those new hires through those first few months? It makes all the difference in the world. I'm really glad that you asked it in that way. So what happens is people on day one have very high expectations. They also have very high excitement. And a lot of times employers forget that day one is your first impression to your new hire. Critical. So in your book, Stop Settling, Settle Smart, you talk about things being done by default or by design. Now, I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that many inadequate onboarding programs are in place because they're just the default. So how can an organization overcome that inertia and design a better program? Yeah, so again, amazing way of putting it. So yes, the inertia starts day one, and then it escalates from there. So what happens is people maybe enter in their first day and they have these high expectations and excitement and maybe there's some typical onboarding. So the HR onboarding components of facilities, you get your badge, you get your equipment, you learn where you're sitting, you maybe meet some people that are sitting around you. If you're virtual, there's some type of a virtual onboarding. Companies are pretty good at the basics but then they forget about setting you up for what the experience of your next 90 days will be. And so the new hire is thinking to themselves, wow, it was a great first day, but now what? And they don't have any foresight into what's to come. It's also an opportunity for them to weigh in on their own 90 day onboarding and setting them up for success with some ownership. And if it's done with design, the companies that do this best actually involve the new hire in the 90-day process where their ownership of their own career begins from day one. And that's when we start to see things that are really sticky and exciting for the company, not just the new hire, in that the person now owns their own career experience and expectations are clear from the beginning and that you're setting them up for success instead of being reactive and waiting for people to try to figure out the navigation path of their own 90 days, there's a pretty clear way for them to get from day one to day 90, and they can soar from there. So the default is not a good thing. The design is a great thing. 
and it's way beyond the basics of onboarding. It's really how to set them up for success with various key stakeholder meetings, for example. For example, also making sure that they have access, not just from a technology perspective, but access to the right tools and templates and processes and best practices and lessons learned, who to go to for what, et cetera, et cetera. You already kind of started there, but can you walk me through, just starting with a broad overview, what a well-designed, effective onboarding program is going to look like over those first 90 days? Sure. Think of it in a 360. And I think this is where a lot of companies, again, maybe they have a good day one, but then they fall short. So the 360 is, do they have everything they need from a tool, technology, equipment perspective to do their job? And that's the easy part. Then it's to the processes and the people. Who are they going to interact with? Who are they going to learn from? Do they get a mentor? Some companies are really amazing at setting up a buddy system or a mentor system right away. Who can they ask their questions to in terms of navigating? Who will I go to for what? Who owns certain pieces of our operations? Who owns marketing? Who can answer things for me about clients if I'm in sales or account management? If I'm in procurement, who can I go to that will give me the policies and the protocol and how we purchase things and how we actually are incentivized to save our company money? If I'm in HR or talent acquisition and I'm a recruiter, for example, what is the philosophy here in terms of how we attract, retain, and advance people in our organization? And also how we really choose to make the life experience of our candidates and our employees and our coworkers, something that's really clear to everybody. And so where do I get that information within my first 90 days? Who do I go to for what? And then processes, a lot of times, it's not just a handbook or some internal memorandum or even access to SharePoint where maybe things are stored, for example but it's really about what are the fastest, most efficient ways for me to navigate through my career so that I can do my job to the best of my ability and hit the ground running, certainly within, if not right after that 90 day period. And just a quick carve out, if you will, sometimes it's longer than 90 days in very strategic roles or senior executive roles. I do a lot of executive coaching, for example, and it might be six months before you're really a domain expert, not just in what you're doing at the company, but how to navigate the company's culture and not just the internal pieces, but externally, how do we want to be viewed in the market? So really peppering in and flavoring your 90-day plan, or in some cases, six-month plan, to think about the 360 of all the pieces that this new hire will touch and be touched by. So what does that look like in practice when you're working with a new hire? Is it a series of meetings, trainings? You mentioned it's not just a training manual or a guidebook, but what shape does it actually take? Yeah, so first and foremost, there's a lot of what I call either hand-to-hand or shoulder-to-shoulder work that has to take place. But in the virtual world that we live in now, you know, certainly with globalization and hyper-competition and speed, A lot of it is done virtually. So video is your friend. If you're not sitting with somebody or they're not able to actually access you physically, 
video is really, really important. You can gauge people's total emotional responses to what it is you're teaching them or training them on by looking at them and asking them about their reactions and body language. And also making sure that you can see one another more than just you know once or twice in the first 90 days. It's really important if they're virtual to make them feel part of the team and video really helps with that. So the other thing that I really encourage is it's some one-on-one -on -one short meetings. So they don't have to be long, laborious, report out type of meetings where someone's just listening. It can be a two-way dialogue. So I always encourage that the new hire get involved with their first 90 day process. So you would give them what their 90 days will look like, who they need to meet with, where they're gonna access the things that they need for the tools and success pieces of their job. And then you would give them access to people's calendars, for example, and who they need to meet with. And they don't have to be 30 minute meetings or an hour meeting. They could even be 15 minute meetings. I like to call these huddles. And a lot of times the huddle is just a place to really get to know somebody's philosophy, what it is they do and how they'll interact with them and who they can go to for what. And it's also a chance for them to get to know the new hire and ask them questions about themselves, what their aspirations are. It's the first shot to really get in their head and really motivate them kind of, you know, heads and hearts kind of thing. So I really encourage varying the types of meetings that you set up for people, the access points that they have both virtually and live. And then also, I guess the final piece that's really important is that People are also a lot of times able to absorb information on their own, but remember that everybody learns differently. And if you give somebody a handbook and just because they've signed off that they've read it, it doesn't mean they've digested it or that they could even play it back to you. And unlike our traditional education system where you learn things and then you test and then you forget, that's actually not a good way to onboard somebody. So I really encourage you to do different types of interactive learnings and onboardings in terms of your policies and procedures, your culture, your vision, your mission, your values, and really make sure that people are understanding them by playing them back to you in different contexts, not just by signing off on a handbook electronically or in print. When you talk about a new hire taking some control over their onboarding process, how does that work? What does that look like? Is it something that's kind of an abrupt transition? Is it something that happens gradually over the course of those 90 days? How does a new hire actually take control? Sure. Well, first of all, it's unusual for companies to even give them control in their first 90 days. So I'm encouraging something a little radical. But if you are a fan of some of the new leadership models, uh, even some of the new books that have come out, it's really about hiring grownups. And I'm not talking about age. It's age and generation irrelevant. I'm talking about really giving people the keys to their own car of their career. So for example, you would say to somebody, here's your 90 day plan. Here are the kinds of people, process and technologies that you're gonna have access to. Here is what's critical for you in terms of who you need to get in front of, who you need to get to know, and how you need to start learning and showing what you're learning and applying it. And so you turn that plan over to them and you give them the access to the people they need to meet with. And instead of scheduling all those meetings for them, you say, here you go, here's our org chart, here's access, here's how we reach people, whether it's, again, electronically or physically. And then you say, now you go ahead and set up these meetings with everybody. And also make sure that you're checking off what you're learning and how you're applying it as you go throughout this 90 days. Not just that it's a top down, but it's really kind of a bottom up. So you, again, you create this 
360 of learning and onboarding and speed, along with people's maturity that they are in the driver's seat of their own career, even if they're new and they don't know a whole lot about your products or services or your company or your culture, you hired them for a reason. And if you treat them like grownups from day one, you'll see that they're taking a lot more control and having a lot more sort of um, in chargeness, if you will, about their own navigation of their career. And then I don't hear the headaches later of, it's hard to manage people. Sometimes it's like babysitting. They don't follow through. Those things usually are a symptom of a management issue as much, if not more so than an employee issue. How does it work and what does it look like across different industries, whether you're maybe in professional services or you're in healthcare or you're in retail? What does this look like and how does it bend and flex depending on the job and the industry? Yeah, so that's a great question. And there are some definite differences. So for example, in retail, which tends to have higher turnover and higher burnout and longer hours and not always the greatest pay, those are tough positions to recruit for and also really tough to retain people. A lot of times you're talking about people that you spend time and investment and training on and maybe they don't stay and they leave for a difference in a dollar an hour um, on an hourly non-exempt role type thing. pay increase. And of course, maybe that's what they need for their family. And it's really hard for you to manage through that. So culture counts. So if you're in a higher stress or higher burnout environment, like retail or healthcare, for example, where we see a lot of high stress and high burnout or call center type work, for example, where there's a lot of volume and need to hire a lot of people at one time, and you're attrition is sort of a given that you're going to be turning over a lot of people and retraining and recruiting all the time. It's really important to get them bought into your culture and your values from day one and to be consistent about it throughout. And even though a lot of the focus in those types of roles tends to be more practical in terms of the skills and tasks themselves, don't forget your culture really counts and to get them integrated with various people and to expose them to various Uh, ways of doing things based on exposure to those different roles within your company and not just throw them knee deep into their role and keep them sort of locked up in a box because that usually doesn't bode well for future mobility and growth and connection to your organization. And when you look at things on a different end of the spectrum, such as uh, I'm in Silicon Valley, so I work with a lot of high tech companies, both early stage and late stage. What you see a lot of times is an incredible approach towards recruiting top talent because everybody wants top talent, especially for really high end technical positions and people are sought after and they're really wooed in a lot of ways. They're these rock stars and superstars that everybody wants. And then what happens is once you get through that process and you get them to agree to be hired and you onboard them, there's like a deflation that happens that I see a lot of times and people feel so connected and so wanted and desired. And then they get in and all of a sudden there's a lot less attention and care. So, you know, just like customer care is such an incredible thing and kind of a buzzword now, we have voices of the customer everywhere we look and customer care and customer success programs that build loyalty with our clients. We have to do the same thing, especially with our high-end rockstar superstar candidates. And those first 90 days, they are watching you just as much as you're watching them to make sure that fit is right for them. And it wasn't just the, you know, excitement leading up to the marriage. Now you're getting married. And so you have to really invest with consistency. 
How is this similar or different when you have someone who's newly promoted, who's been with the organization already, as opposed to someone who's coming in new and fresh? Well, we just ignore them. <laughs> what really happens is so many times I see people just thrown in. So again, there's sort of this hoopla around the ability to get promoted and promoting from within has become such an important strategy for most companies, regardless of what industry they're in. And yet when people do get promoted, we don't give them a plan for the promotion and the new role and the new scope. We kind of throw them in because we, we figured they've earned it. They know what they're getting themselves into. Maybe they've been with us a while, a couple of years or even longer. And so we don't think that they need an immersion plan. But in fact, it's another opportunity to do another 90-day type of a scenario so that you're setting them up for success yet again with consistency and clarity and focus and that everybody knows what they're signing up for with expectations and success factors built in. So it's just another opportunity all in really the auspices of retention, loyalty, and engagement because everybody wants that. In your book, you talk about the importance of strengths, both in that people with different strengths can work well together and that an organization needs people with a variety of strengths. So how do the strengths of a new hire or a newly promoted person shape their personal onboarding process? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, I was just with the founder of Ancestry.com, a gentleman named Paul Allen, and we were working on something new that he's co-founder of called SOAR which is uh, originally Don Clifton, Soar With Your Strengths, the inventor of positive psychology and what's right with people, not what's wrong with people from the 70s output of, and Gallup and all the world polling studies, people's strengths, over 20 million people, for example, have taken the strength, finder, strength finders profile assessment on their talents. And people's top talents, when they're all utilized, really accelerate performance for themselves and their team. So first step is to really know what your strengths are. And in the strengths finder world, if that's a tool you've used or you'd like to use, they come in four flavors. Are you an executor, an influencer, a relationship builder, or a strategic thinker, or some combination permutation of those four key areas? And so if people are either new hire or newly promoted, make sure that you know what they're bringing to the table and that you're using all of their strengths and talents. It's really a different way of operating than thinking about what people aren't good at or what their weaknesses are and coming with a warning label. So kind of picturing people walking around with these warning labels. Oh, I'm not good at patience. Well, good. Let's put you in something where you need to activate and move things along. Or I'm really not good at certain details. I'm really better at big picture thinking. Well, great. Let's have you on the ideation team. Or the opposite. I'm super deliberate and focused and I like to be head down in my work. Well, great. Let's not have you sit in think tank meetings or blue sky meetings because it'll drive you crazy. So really knowing where people are coming from in terms of their strengths and talents and making sure we're really working with those strengths and talents and growing those, whether they're new or newly promoted for themselves, because that in effect will really increase and uplift the team and ultimately the company. If we can get people in the right role, focused on the right things based on their strengths and talents. You referenced this a little bit, but what does it look like when you hit the end of that 90 day mark? You mentioned in some cases it kind of continues on past, but in other cases, is it just a closed door? What does it look like? 
Yeah, I like to look at it in three phases. And again, you can adapt this for yourselves because there's no magic number. It might be 90 days. It might be six months. It's hard to say. It really is role and company dependent and person dependent. But if you think of it in this way, the first set of time or snapshot of time, let's call it 30 days, they're actually shadowing. They're absorbing. They're immersing. Then they're shadowing back. So they're shadowing you and then they're being shadowed back by you, their manager or their mentor or some combination of their, uh, so for example, um, when I took over a company for a founder, the first 30 days I listened, I learned, I watched, I asked people things. I didn't make any changes and believe me, I wanted to make changes right away, but I didn't, I had to really pulse check myself. And then at the 60-day mark throughout that next phase, I was really starting to have people kind of watch different ways that I could introduce efficiencies or scale or thought leadership or whatever it was. And so really starting to pepper in my own flavor, but still having people give me feedback because you don't know what you don't know. And whether you're new in a role or new to a company, it's really a good time to really listen and learn more than to take action. Then towards the 90 days with the third sort of juncture of the series, you're starting to really soar and kind of fly on your own, but you're still having check-ins with people to make sure that you're absorbing what the company culture is, you're promoting it correctly out in the marketplace, you're set up for success and you know where to find things and that you're not just having to do workarounds. So there's still sort of this check-in, but you have a lot more freedom and you're starting to take action more on your own. And then there's a bit of this transition period after that, that says, okay, now I'm really in the role. I feel like I know what I'm doing. I'm married to this culture. I'm able to make an impact. I'm part of a team. I'm, you know, really feeling like I'm set up for success and the company's starting to also see results from my actions and my behaviors. Then you're really much more in this sort of freedom space. However, that initial phase, 90 days or six months in this case, you are still having that foundation underneath you that if you get stuck or you're going to step in it or you get lost or you don't know if you are thinking of something correctly, two heads are better than one, you know exactly who to go to for what, where to access everything. And you really are immersed in your company in a way that you can't ever really understand how serious that foundation is in terms of benefiting you throughout the life cycle of your career with the company. So for an organization that's taking your advice, going from a standardized default program to one that is designed with the strengths and the needs of a new hire or newly promoted person in mind, what kind of difference is that going to make in their workforce and within their business? What type of impacts have you seen it have? Sure. Well, first of all, there are so many times I am brought into a company to assimilate teams and the teams really aren't that engaged to begin with. And, you know, frankly, that's not my job. That's your job, especially if you're in a leadership position or you're the head of talent acquisition and you're really in charge of your company's recruiting, retention, engagement. So you really want to make sure that people are set up for success from the beginning. And so again, I think all the things we talked about, principles, tactics, ideas, you can apply them to yourself. Then I also think it's really important that you realize this is not for the faint of heart. And if you're not regularly measuring engagement 
which is to me one of the most important measures, or net promoter score is another measure that most of us are starting to use or have been using for years, depending on the type of vertical industry and company we're in. Loyalty cannot just be measured with our clients. We have to measure it with our internal employees and our leaders. Even when people are newly promoted, you want to really make sure that they're engaged beyond just the initial honeymoon period of the promotion or being hired in the first place. Because again, there's usually this honeymoon period. So engagement and measures are critical along the way to make sure that you're getting the impact that you desire. And then the other thing I would tell you is that I have a lot of experience with people being blindsided with people leaving their organizations. When you take time in the first 90 days, people are invested in, they're set up for success and they feel that there is a really good career path for them within the organization, with an organization that cares. And there's depth and there's predictability. And so the chances of them wanting to leave your organization and in fact being recruited out goes way down when we see people having great onboarding experience way past day one. And in fact, people that have managers that spend time with them and work with them based on their strengths and invest in them, their ability to stay within companies and be loyal, their engagement scores, we see this time and time again in many different studies, especially some of the Gallup poll studies. Their stickiness with a company is upwards of 65 to 70% versus with a manager that spends time with you occasionally or kind of ignores you. We see those engagement scores down in the low uh, double digits, sometimes even underneath 10%. So if you want to retain people, you have to invest in them and the earlier, the better. Now, everything we're talking about today, Dana, it really sounds like it requires buy-in from the entire organization. So where does the responsibility actually live? Who has to execute and who has to make sure this happens? Yeah, it, it's definitely starts with the CEO of the company. So your CEO, in essence, if you don't have an official chief people officer, the CEO of your company is the chief people officer. The care and welfare of your team and your talent starts and ends with the CEO. So I put a lot of pressure on CEOs that I coach to make sure that they're walking the walk and talking the talk, not just you know, lip service, but literally that they are exemplifying all of this themselves and taking time to get to know people and, you know, management by walking around might sound simple, but it's absolutely something that I see so many managers, especially executive teams not doing, whether you're walking around virtually or literally really get to know people and really, you know, get to know what's in people's heads and hearts because then they're wanting to stay with your company and they feel cared for. Then it's a management team situation. So we start sort of with shaking the tree from the top down. Managers have to care about people. They have to get involved. They need to get to know their people and what they want, what they desire, and what is aspirational for them. As everybody knows, most people leave managers. They certainly don't leave companies. People join because of people and they leave because of people. Then I put some additional uh, light on the employees themselves because the biggest base is the employee base and employees have a real stake in their own career and again if they're set up with expectations to help manage and navigate their own career from day one and that they're not just held accountable but they're empowered to take some charge of their own career then they will also be able to navigate waters with a little bit more empowerment so i like to think about it as both a top down and a bottom up or said differently 
there's really three ways to manage up, down, and side to side. So everybody needs to get involved when it comes to getting the most out of their own career and their most out of their employees and new hires and also people that they're promoting. Great. Thank you. We talked a little bit today about your book, but can you tell me some more about how it can help leaders who might be inspired by our conversation today and want to make a change at their organization? Sure. So the book is called Stop Settling, Settle Smart, which is a little confusing by design. And it's about blowing up the notion that there is such a thing as work-life balance. We have countless stories of people burning out, really getting themselves in trouble, not taking care of themselves or their families because they're working so much. I mean, we look at uh, the country of Japan and people are literally working themselves to death. We look at Ariana Huffington's story about hitting her head on the glass coffee table because she was so sleep deprived, having incredible success with HuffPost and really transforming the way journalism worked. But at the same time, no self-care and really burning out and getting herself actually physically in trouble. And then, you know, she wrote her big book on sleep and did her huge quantifiable sleep study. So we really don't need to get ourselves into a position where we're burnt out or getting in trouble physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in order to have a great career. And companies that really talk about culture and being family friendly and embracing people's whole selves, not just themselves at work, they really need to read the book and take the quiz. There's a stop settling quiz. And the quiz actually covers the five key areas of your life, which include work, family, friends, society, and vitality. And the trade-offs that we make consciously, but also unconsciously, voluntarily, and involuntarily are all situational and relative. So when your people um, come into your company and you don't really know what they want or what they desire or what their aspirations are or anything about them really outside of the interview process or even who they are at work because they haven't really shown themselves or you don't know them yet, the quiz is a really simple, quick way to ask them what it is they really want, how they want to spend their time and where they want to actually have a holistic, well-rounded life because the work-life balance thing is usually a recipe for disaster. So I always say to people, harmony beats balance and really figure out where people's priorities are. And that's a great way to get in their heads is to ask them, where do you wanna spend your time? Where do you get the most joy? And where do you find the most productivity for yourself? Is it at work? Is it with friends? Is it with your family? Is it out in community? Or is it you know, running a marathon in the vitality facet of your life? So really get to know what people want and then help them get there wherever you possibly can. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Nicole, and thank you to your listeners. And thank you for listening. If you have any questions that we didn't cover today, you can send them our way. You can email us at marketing at peoplescout.com, or you can find us on social media. Just search People Scout on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To make sure you don't miss an episode, visit our blog and subscribe to our feed on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review. Talking Talent is a People Scout production, music by sound design through Shutterstock.